Chapter Two of Stories in Grey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stories in Grey by Barry Payne. Chapter Two. The Autobiography of an Idea. Part One. Before Birth. I am a literary idea. Unborn as yet, I have not the incarnation of paper and printing ink which will be mine hereafter. I am conscious. I have knowledge without the usual apparatus for its acquisition and storage. I see without eyes and hear without ears. I move as I will, and material things cannot hinder my movements. They are swifter than light, and just as swift as thought. You know, of course, that if an idea is going to come to you, Neither locked doors nor iron walls will prevent it. It arrives inevitably and insuperably. You are to be its parent and make it come into the world. You may be ranked as a genius because you are its parent. And, this amuses me, you will think that you are its parent because you are a genius. To the large eyes of the imagination, I might be pictured, in my unborn state, as a puck-like phantom. Only the imagination can see me until I select my parent. Ideas have that privilege. Human beings, on very slight evidence, believe that they do not select their parents. But, on the other hand, they believe on no evidence at all that they do select their ideas. I am not prescient, but I fancy that the man whom I select for my parent should be a very happy man. I am a perfectly brilliant idea. I am new, and I am a master. The world will say it. I shall bring fortune and fame to my parent. Even now, when I am unborn and cannot tell the precise form that I shall take, I exult in my own utter goodness. This is, of course, vain. But then humility is only one of the impositions of the weak majority upon the strong minority, to enable the weak majority to keep up a self-respect to which facts do not entitle it. I decided to come here. Before me lies a vast mass of building materials, sorted out into houses and the like, and known on the eighteen-penny folding map as London and its environs. It swarms. It is too large. Let me see what is immediately before me. Before me is number 23, Harriet Terrace, Fulham. It is a new terrace of thirty-pound houses, and there is no external difference, except the number, between twenty-three and the rest. It is the residence of Albert Weeks, literary hack. Shall I enter and bid Albert Weeks be my parent? I should bring him money and reputation. He would be able to live in a better house than this. People would come to him and say, Albert Weeks, where did you get that perfectly splendid idea? He would taste popularity, smile complacently, and subscribe to a press-cutting agency. Shall I select him or not? He might possibly, after he had become my parent, be unable to reach the same level again. But that disaster rarely happens. Ideas and sheep follow where there are ideas and sheep in front of them. Genius is more often chronic than acute. I do not think that I should have to reproach myself with having caused him ultimately the bitterest failure the failure of a man who once succeeded. But shall I select him? 
Albert Weeks is married, of course, and has three children. His wife is well-meaning, but, I fear, a trifle undereducated. He met her in the old days when he was on a kind of a spree. His love-making was a kind of a spree. There was a touch of sheer spree even in his marriage. It was all irresponsible, enthusiastic, desperate, and the spree is well out of their lives forever and ever, unless I interfere. They are still heart-fond of each other, though she has ceased to remark on his cleverness and sometimes is almost snappish, and he has no time to pet her because he is so busy for so little remuneration. The front room in which he is sitting is rather sordid. They call it the drawing-room, sometimes substituted for the nursery, and habitually use it as his study. There is a quaint gathering of antagonistic furniture. He bought as little furniture as possible at first, because he was no fool and knew that they would have to be economical, and he has added to it since on occasions when he could not possibly afford it. There are, for instance, two chairs from a drawing-room suite, two only. These are covered with pale green velvet, and the velvet is covered with dust. On the chair nearest to the table at which he is writing stands a chipped cup of cold tea surmounting the dust and the velvet. The cold tea seems to be looking upward with a grey, patient eye at the gaudy paper lampshade, the photogravure of the prodigal sun, and the smoked ceiling. It is a room that must always have had crumbs in it. Houseflies go long distances in order to die in this room. They have died conspicuously and frequently in it. In one corner, broken and bygone bamboo has now definitely despaired of ever signifying refinement, and in the one piano sconce which is not broken lingers the stump of a candle that has wept its composite heart out over the stained keyboard, wept for the death of the flies and the despair of the bad bamboo and the general deadliness of everything. There is on the table a handsome, black-spotted wedding present of an inkstand. In front of it sits Albert Weeks at work. He is rather a small man, with sandy hair and the frock coat which he has given up wearing out of doors, or when, as his wife says, there are people. There are not any now, for he is alone in the room. The expression of his face is careful. He has to be careful because the editor of the inner circle was by no means satisfied with his last batch of paragraphs, and he cannot afford to be deprived of the guinea a week which he receives from the very fashionable journal. The editor had said, though more rudely, technically, and briefly, that either Mr. Albert Weeks would have to convey a more convincing impression of his intimate acquaintance with high society, or the inner circle would dispense with his valuable services. The words that the editor who was rather less fashionable than his penny-panting paper, actually used, were, More savvy or outside only, my dear boy, and don't you forget it. What are you to do when you are too good to know the butler and not good enough for the butler's master to know you? This is what, I perceive, Albert Weeks is doing, writing laboriously. The season is dying fast, and I am sure that most of my readers will agree with me that it has been an unusually brilliant one. So everybody was saying to me at Lady Ballingham's last night. By the way, Lady Ballingham must have the secret of eternal youth. Last night she looked more beautiful than ever. 
As for her house in Park Lane, I have always considered it to be quite the most charming townhouse that I have seen in the whole course of my experience. Well, the long round of delightful and luxurious. Here he is interrupted, because his worn-out, striving, vulgar, respectable, loving, sharpish wife had come into the room with the blue paper in her hand. Supper, Albert. Come on now. Oh, you ain't touched your tea, and I was particular to bring it. Are you coming? Henry has broken the soap dish in the nursery. That's what the crying was about. This here is Bilderspins for what he did to the kitchen range. It's I. One seventeen six. That is the last straw. His editor has bothered him. His work has bothered him. He is very tired. A paragraph, which was really coming out very nicely, has been interrupted. Money is very scarce, and supper is mere mutton, and his wife looks rather ill, and Bilderspin is one seventeen six. The combination overpowers him. The little man throws down his pen, stamps his foot, and swears like a mad blackguard, swears profusely. His wife takes a step backward, as if to get out of the room. Then her face becomes twisted. She sits down on the music stool and suddenly begins to cry. She is shaken with sobs. Oh, Albert, oh, Albert, she says over and over again. And then, how can you be so cruel? All things bad enough without that. Then he goes quickly to her and is remorseful. He is not angry with her, of course. It is only that things are going so badly. He takes her hand. She regains her composure. She is sure that he is quite overworked, but he ought not to give way. On the contrary, he should hope for the best. There is a good deal of make-believe cheerfulness over the mere mutton subsequently. Now then, shall I make this man my parent? If I crept through that sandy hair into the whitey gray brain, what a change there would be. He would be conscious that he had got a new, tremendous, imperial idea. He would put down his knife and fork, finish the beer in his glass at one gulp, explain hurriedly to his wife that he was really inspired this time, and rush wildly at the handsome inkstand and his work. By the following midday I should be in manuscript. In six weeks, Albert would be famous. In six months, he would have real money and no debts, and there would be more money to come. There would be a new soap dish, new furniture, new dresses for his wife. Henry would have toys and a go-kart. Albert would, on little occasions, have a hide-seek. They would be off to the seaside for a fortnight and do the thing well and the personal paragraphs would say that Mr. Weeks and his family were spending the winter in Brighton, where it is to be hoped that this new and brilliant author will not allow his pen to be idle. No, I definitely decide that I will not make Albert Weeks my parent. I am not a philanthropist. I am only an idea. I do not want to benefit Albert Weeks, and I do want to satisfy my own whim. My own whim definitely refuses Albert Weeks. At the same time, I am in a great hurry to be born. I have knowledge, but it is limited. For instance, I believe that I am an idea for a short story, but I am not sure. I know I am a miraculously good idea, but I do not know in what way I am miraculously good. I yearn to see myself in my final form. I must positively get born. Well, 
Let me examine elsewhere. Here, I observe, the traffic is being partially disturbed by a long funeral procession coming briskly back from the cemetery. In the first coach is a young man alone. He is in deep mourning. He has drawn the window blinds down. His hat is placed on the front seat. He himself is kneeling on the floor of the coach. His arms sprawl over the back seat. His eyes are glaring, hot with unshed tears. He bends his head and bites the wrist of one hand. I knew his name at once and something about him. He is the Honorable Charles Turner Wilmot. Away in the cemetery lies the still body of Maud Ferridus, whom Wilmot was to have married two months hence if she had lived. The agony of his grief would not be doubted by anyone who saw him now. Yet Wilmot is a man who has always doubted himself. He is haunted with the thought that he is a sham. He once doubted his love for his books and had himself put up for a sporting club which neither interested him nor desired his membership. The reactionary fit was bitter, but it was short. As with his books, so with his writing. In proud moments he believes that he is going to be a leader. He pays for his pride with days of depression when he doubts whether he is even capable of being a decent follower. As with his writing, so with his love. A few weeks ago he asked himself seriously if he was not merely trying to be romantic, if he really loved this Maud Ferridus who was to be his wife. That doubt went before the pretty yellow-headed girl died, and now he does not doubt his sorrow. Yes, the Honorable Charles Turner Wilmot shall be my parent. He shall bring me into the world. Now, as he sprawls in that morning coach, his wild, aching brain shall become possessed of me. It is a delightful whim. In I go. Part 2. Birth. The Honorable Charles Turner Wilmot has, later in the same day, in the solitude of his comfortable chambers overlooking Piccadilly, just recovered from a rather an unpleasant fit of hysteria. Albert Weeks would have thanked God for me, but Wilmot positively does not want to be my parent. He would cheerfully sacrifice a year's income if, by so doing, he could definitely get me out of his head, but he cannot. I am going to be born, and this is the first part of the process. The trouble is that I am inappropriate, horribly and grotesquely inappropriate, for I have discovered more about myself, and I find that I am a humorous idea. I am the newest, the most delicious, the most inevitably humorous idea that ever has been or ever will be. The bare thought of me brings a deep satisfaction right away down in the very pit of one's appreciations. At first I am too great for laughter, but the laughter comes. It comes and chuckles. It swells and grows to shaking paroxysms. Here, in this room, but half an hour ago, Wilmot at last reached the full appreciation of me. It had been growing upon him ever since the moment in the morning coach when I first came to him. There had been, at intervals, sudden smiles over his face, succeeded by an expression of agonized shame and contrition. But at the full appreciation of me, he gave up the struggle and began to laugh. He threw back his head, he stamped one foot, he held his sides with both hands, he roared, he howled helplessly. He staggered about the room, 
doubled up with convulsions of laughter. He tried to stop, but could not. He tried again, and for one moment gravity secured a foothold. Then it slipped, and off he went once more, worse than ever, roaring, howling, screaming, purple in the face. His laughter stopped quite suddenly, as great fits of laughter often do, as if it had been cut short with the clean stroke of a knife. He took out his watch, glanced at it, and, just as he had realized the full humor of me, realized the full horror of the situation, three short hours before he stood beside an open grave, wherein he did then most truly believe that all his interest and all the brightness of his life lay. He had wanted the world to stop because Maud Faradus had gone, and there was nothing else of importance. He had heard the robed priest, Maud's cousin, reciting in a voice that tried to be steadier than it was, From henceforth blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. He had become unconscious then of the service, unconscious of anything but the burning in his heart. Someone had touched him on the shoulder when it was time to go. That was three hours ago. And yet he had just finished a fit of the wildest, most uncontrollable laughter. He had been allowing himself to be amused. It was just here that Wilmot had that unpleasant attack of hysteria. He has recovered from it, and has composed himself. His face is very white now, and he looks rather like a man under a curse. He gets out his writing materials. Maud, he says softly, you are not minding, are you? This damned thing has got into my head. I didn't want to think of anything humorous, but this came to me. Maud, it would make the dead laugh. It is too funny. And I don't want to think about it any more. That is why I'm going to write it all out. Then perhaps I may be able to put it aside. Oh, Maud, don't think that I'm irreverent and unfeeling. My heart is dead and with you. I hate myself for having laughed, but I had to. I will get rid of this idea that's haunting me, and then I don't think I shall ever laugh again. He sits down, and at the top of the page writes in a large hand, Ellen. It is the title of the story which is to embody me. He writes fast for half an hour, and then a servant brings in the lighted lamps. Will you dine in tonight, sir? he asks, when Wilmot looks up from the paper. Yes. No. I don't know. He speaks a little absent-mindedly, with one hand on his forehead, shading his eyes, as though he held the idea there and were afraid that it would escape. I have no intention of escaping. I'm busy. If I want to dine, I'll go to the club. That will be all tonight. Very good, sir. The moment the servant has gone, the pen dashes down on the paper again, as though it had gained an additional impetus by being kept back for a minute. He does not dine out. He does not go to the club. He writes at lightning speed, only pausing to laugh from time to time more wildly than ever. He laughs and writes, writes and laughs, on and on, until he finds that the lamps are going out and glances at his watch. It is five o'clock in the morning, and the stack of paper in front of him is the finished story. Me, myself. Me, the magnificently humorous idea. He draws back the curtain and lets the wan London daylight into the room. He realizes that he feels very exhausted and shaky. 
goes to the sideboard in an adjoining room and gets himself some brandy. He drinks two glasses of it in rapid succession. Then he goes off to bed. He is too tired for any further emotion. Laughter and tears alike will be a closed book to him until he has slept. He falls asleep at once and sleeps long, heavily, dreamlessly. And I lie on the table in the study, newborn, in a snow-white manuscript incarnation. Will my reluctant parent burn me in the morning? Part 3. After Birth No, I am safe. Safe in a fool's cap envelope, directed, sufficiently stamped, whirled about by postal arrangements. It happened in this way. Wilmot came into the study rather late next morning. He looked beaten, humiliated, tired and half-starved. He cast one vindictive glance at me and passed into the next room where breakfast was ready for him. He was rather a long time over breakfast. When the emotional heart is completely broken up, the ordinary, blood-pumping heart will go on with its work. So with the other organs. Sorrow postpones appetite rather than destroys it. Wilmot had no dinner on the day of Maud's funeral. He had quite a nice breakfast on the following morning. He came back to me at last, and I knew that he meant to destroy me. His face was intentionally rigid, the lips set firm, the eyes merciless. Yet somewhere, at the back of that merciless eye, looked a quite different, milder expression. The fried sole and eggs had done their carnal work. An incongruous geniality was struggling upward in him. He was going through the disgusting experience of feeling the better for his food. However, he poked the fire fiercely. Then he lit a pipe, with the air that he did not care about it, but did not think it worthwhile to omit it. And then he picked me up to hurl me in the fire. As he held me in his hand, his eyes rested for one second on the front page. In that one second, my young life hung in the balance. It was a moment of terrible excitement for me. The eye glanced through a few lines, and I felt a shade safer. The eye twinkled. Then I knew that it was all over, and that my future was assured. Wilmot would not burn me. His habit of doubting himself had triumphed once more. Of course, after that, he had nothing to do but to sit down before the fire and argue it out with himself. The story should be published in the Cosmopolitan. Why not? It was unhappy, incongruous, wretched, that a humorous idea should have come to him yesterday of all days. But he had not sought for it. He had even struggled to the utmost to put the thing out of his head. After all, if there was any harm done, if there had been any sign of want of feeling on his part, that lay far more in the writing than in the publication of the story. He would never put his name to it, of course. No one should be able to say that Maud's lover took the loss of her lightly, and he would take no remuneration for it. He would forward the amount of the check that he received from the Cosmopolitan to some charity. Besides, what right had he to keep that story from the public? It might not be, probably was not, so splendidly and amazingly good as he had imagined, but still he knew something of his business, and he knew that it would be likely to be popular. It might cheer many who were ill and depressed, and add something to the sum of human happiness. And he did not think that the critics, with their Athenian longing to see and to hear some new thing, would miss noticing the novelty and spirit of it. 
Indeed, he had mingled feelings of philanthropy and self-abnegation as he sat down to write, on deep-edged paper, a little note to the editor of the Cosmopolitan. To a certain extent, he deceived himself. If Albert Weeks had voluntarily surrendered, on sentimental grounds, his honorarium for a short story, there would have been something in the sacrifice. But Wilmot had a private income, more than sufficient for all his needs, and to him the surrender of the cheque meant nothing. His surrender of the reputation, which he believed would attach to the author of Ellen, did amount to something. For he had the weakness, cui etiam saepe bone indulgent. But it did not amount to very much, because it is an exceedingly rare thing for a single short story to attract any attention at all, and although Wilmot believed in the chance of Ellen, he knew that it was not more than a thousand to one chance. Nor was there very much in his doubt whether he had the right, for the sake of his personal sorrow, to deny the in public an enjoyment. The real reason that swayed him was paternal love. He had made me and seen that I was very good. He could not commit infanticide. He liked to explain himself, but his curious mixture of intense humility and some subtle vanities always made a desperate business of it whenever the real explanation was some simple thing. His note to the editor of the Cosmopolitan ran as follows. My dear Roger, if you will read the enclosed story, you will understand how gladly I could have sent it to you a few weeks ago. As I did not do so then, I do so now but as you will imagine, with the greatest possible reluctance. I send it because I do really think that it is the kind of thing that I have often heard you say you want. The only condition I make is that my name shall not be put to it or disclosed in connection with it. I send it to you today instead of waiting because I am leaving England and I am trying to put my house in order before I go and to clear up such business as I have on hand but I am sure you will appreciate how eager I am to get some place, any place, where solitude and silence are possible. I fear that this will be my last contribution to the Cosmopolitan. If it were not so melodramatic to say so, I would tell you that from henceforth I am practically dead. Yours ever, C.T. Wilmot. Now I think it must be acknowledged that, for a man who was not, as a rule, a liar, this letter is, from a liar's point of view, distinctly creditable. I hold that letter in my own, somewhat corpulent manuscript embrace. It and I together, in the twilight seclusion of a foolscap envelope, are at the present being whirled through postal machinery. It is all over. My embodiments have been multiplied. Since the Cosmopolitan has sold out seven editions of the number which contains me, to a marvelous extent. I have been a phenomenal and unprecedented success. In the library of the country house, in the rectory, in Mayfair drawing rooms, in Bloomsbury parlors, in working men's clubs, in public house bars, in England, in America, in the colonies, everywhere where English or an approximation to it is spoken, I am the subject of discussion. There is a touch of the universal about me, and already the translators are busy. Enthusiastic critics have been more screamingly enthusiastic than ever before about me. The severest critics have unbent. I have the additional attraction of a mystery. Only two people really know who wrote me. Wilmot, my author, and Roger Berman, his editor, and neither of them will tell. 
On the authorship of Ellen, only two people have dared to question Berman, his assistant editor and his proprietor. Berman has told neither, and quarreled with both. It is the day of his glory, and he can afford to quarrel with almost anybody. Canards on the subject of my authorship have flown over the country in dense flocks. Albert Weeks has, as usual, drawn his longbow at a venture, and, as usual, missed the joints of the harness. This is his little paragraph on the subject. The secret of the authorship of Ellen has been wonderfully well kept. There are probably not more than twenty people in London who really know it. When the secret is told, and, unless unforeseen circumstances occur, it will be told very soon, there will be howling and gnashing of teeth among various uninformed paragraphists who have been spreading their rumours on the subject. As an instance of the importance which the author attaches to the secret, I may say that one of the twenty in the know is a butler who became possessed of the information by accident, and that he is to be rewarded for his silence with an annuity of two hundred pounds. More than this, I am, unfortunately, not permitted to say at present. Of course, I knew from the first that I was exceedingly good, but still it is very pleasant to have it acknowledged. My success is a joy to me. It is also a joy to Berman. It is also a joy, and this is really terrible, to the Honorable Charles Turner Wilmot. For in this latter case I fear the reaction. Letters, forwarded by the secret hand of Berman, have come to him from the office of the Cosmopolitan for many editors have been anxious to communicate with the author of Ellen, care of the Cosmopolitan. He has answered none of them, yet just for a minute he has hesitated. At this time he carefully abstains from any thought of Maud. If such a thought arises, he puts it out of his head again feverishly. That is the trouble. He dare not think about Maud. Maud is apparently not to be denied. The power of the dead has come forth. Wilmot's heart and brain are filled with Maud now. He sees her eyes on him and hears her voice in daydreams and night dreams. He is alone in his rooms, doing nothing, frightened, sickened, humiliated. It seems to him that he had once the belief that, with all his faults, he was at least a man of feeling and honor, and that he has now lost the belief, and that he cannot live without it. He starts from the chair and paces the room slowly in utter agony. His brows are contracted, his eyes ache. Sometimes his hands close convulsively. Sometimes he draws a deep breath, like one who is enduring a torture that kills. It is the reaction. It began yesterday. Yesterday he noticed that he felt uneasy whenever he looked at the little oil painting of Maud that hung above his mantelpiece. He thought that must be because the portrait did no true justice to her, or because it distressed him that any other eyes but his should see Maud's picture. During the whole period of joy in the funny successful story that he wrote on the night that Maud was buried, he had been ready with shoals of euphemistic cheerful arguments to prove that he was acting finely. Yet, as a matter of fact, the uneasiness that he felt arose from a kind of fear. He decided to lock the portrait away with her letters in the bureau. As he was doing so, his eyes fell on the first note that he had ever received from Maud. Merely an invitation to dinner, written to save her mother the trouble, written in shy, formal language, and commencing with, 
dear Mr. Wilmot. An impulse seized him to look again, by way of contrast, at the last letter that he had ever had from her. It was written in pencil, just at the beginning of Maud's sudden and fatal illness. It began thus. They tell me I'm very ill, Charlie, and they won't let me write more than just a little letter. They say that they will send you a longer letter themselves all about the illness. Oh, my poor dear one, I must tell you. I got it out of the doctors that they think I am going to die, perhaps. But I'm not. You've made my life so sweet that I won't leave it. I can't die and be taken away from you. Do not be despairing, my lover. Doctors so often make mistakes, you know, and I'm sure that I shall get better. How could I die when you've made living so well worthwhile? Oh, dear lover, did any man ever love so finely and nobly as you? I don't deserve you. No, I don't. The letter shook in Wilbert's trembling hand. It was with difficulty that he read off. I cried so much last night, and you weren't there to comfort me, and I was so lonely. Why? He had to stop there. His throat moved involuntarily, and he was on the verge of sobbing. Moving slowly and quietly, he put the letters back in the bureau and the portrait back in its place on the wall. He sat down in front of the portrait and gazed at it. A pretty, yellow-haired girl with mournful eyes, who had loved him well and thought him noble. And God had taken her and left him to the composition of an intensely humorous story. Now that he has lost the belief in himself as a man of feeling and honor, he cannot live without it. Late at night he goes out. He goes down to the embankment with the intention of killing himself. He does not do it because he arrives there just in time to stop another man from killing himself. The other man, a stranger to Wilmot, is a young man with sandy hair, to wit, Mr. Albert Weeks. I think, says Wilmot, speaking firmly, but with a curious smile on his face, you had better come back with me to my rooms and talk this over. He stops a passing cab. What's it got to do with you? Weeks begins. You happen to have saved my life. That's a lie. You saved mine, though I didn't want your damned interference. You pulled me back as I was on the parapet. What do you mean by saying I saved your life? Ah, Wilmot says with the same dreary smile. That is what I want you to come and talk about. I also had intended to commit suicide. Surely that is sufficient introduction. Come now, get into the cab. At Wilmot's chambers, the servant, with an anxious expression on his face, let them in. It vanished as he saw Wilmot. He had been nervous about his master, and he was glad to see him no longer alone and looking in better spirits. Have you dined? Wilmot asked Weeks. I don't care for it, Weeks answered doggedly. No, nor do I. We will suppose dinner. Francis, bring coffee. Yes, and we will have a bottle of the port. Francis recognized the force of the definite article. Albert Weeks felt mazed and wondering. Were the events of the last few days that had driven him to desperation unreal? Or was this unreal? The two men had drawn their chairs up in front of the fire. Albert Weeks sipped the fragrant coffee and blinked his eyes. He was in a kind of dream. Through it he heard Wilmot speaking. Yes, if it had not been for you, I should have drowned myself tonight. 
The sight of another man on the verge of committing exactly the same act suddenly showed me that suicide was running away. One should not run away. It is not brave, though brave men have done it through sudden panic. You have placed me under a very great obligation to you. Weeks shook his head. You saved me too. No, no. I saved you from an isolated act. You saved me from an entirely wrong principle. I do not know whether I make myself clear, but I feel the obligation deeply, and I will speak of it again afterwards. In the meantime, you should know my name. He handed Weeks a card. Weeks glanced at it and said, I have no card, but my name is Albert Weeks, and I used to live at number 23 Harriet Terrace, Fulham. I was a journalist. I failed. I used to be on the inner circle, but I got kicked off. Do you know the inner circle? I've seen the posters, but I cannot say that I've ever read it. It's nothing much to read, but it was all I had to live on. I'm married, with children. It was very difficult to get along. Sometimes I got a short thing taken elsewhere, not often. I borrowed a little money on my furniture. When I got kicked off the inner circle, I couldn't pay the interest due, and so the Jews took the furniture. My wife and children had gone to her married sister, a Mrs. Warboys. She wouldn't have me, and she grudges the shelter that she gives my wife and children. They'll come to the workhouse. So I haven't lived anywhere the last two days. Tonight I sold the last thing I had. It was my mother's wedding ring. Thought I'd buy myself a good dinner before I died. Then why didn't you? Oh, I'd got in the habit of giving my wife anything that I happened to make, so I went into a post office and sent it off to her without thinking. Go on said Wilman. Well, there wasn't much more. In the letter I sent from the post office, I told her I had a berth to go abroad, and if I could make anything, I would send it. I've cut my name off the linen. If I'd once got into the river, there would have been nothing to identify me by, so she'd have gotten used gradually to being without me. And her married sister would have felt she'd more claim for support if she had no husband. Now I must tell you about myself. Well, of course, I know a little about you. I've seen signed things by you in the Cosmopolitan. I was never one of the lucky ones. They wouldn't take me on the swell magazines. Did you read Ellen? Read it and roared over it. So did I. They kept the secret well. I suppose they didn't tell you who wrote it. No, they never told me. Fill your glass again. Albert Weeks did so. The wine was warming him giving him a little more self-confidence and geniality. This is beautiful port, he said. Really beautiful port. I can't understand why you should have wanted to commit suicide. You have no money troubles. None. You live in these comfortable chambers in perfect luxury, with a butler and everything. You can get your stuff taken by the very best papers. I don't say that you've made a real hit, like the man who wrote Ellen, but you must be good to get into the Cosmopolitan. It's so much better, you know, weeks, to be a good man than to be a good author. I had done a disgraceful thing. It did not involve public disgrace. It was not, in the eyes of the law, an offense at all. But it took away my self-respect, and I did not feel as if I could live without it. It was driving me mad. I would rather not speak of the details. Certainly not, said Weeks. Now I want to talk over some plans for you. 
but I must first write a letter. Will you excuse me? The letter was soon written and given to Francis to post. Now then, said Wilmot, standing before the fire, as we have finished our wine, we will smoke a cigar. It seems to me indicated. As I said before, without intending it, you have placed me under a very great obligation. I feel sure that you, as a gentleman, will understand that I should like to show my sense of the position. As some slight acknowledgment of the great service that you have rendered me, I have just sent instructions to my solicitors by which you will, on my decease, receive a legacy of one thousand pounds. You want money now, and I want to give it you, but of course you would not consent to the humiliation of receiving a present of money. A legacy is a different matter, and one can take a legacy. I, I do not know how to thank you, said Weeks. I could not, of course, have accepted a present of money. Now I must tell you my plans for you. You love your wife? She and the children are, well, they're naturally the principal thing. Now it is quite evident to me that it is your duty to take them into the country for a holiday. You look overworked. Oh, I worked pretty hard, but it didn't come to anything. I failed. Very likely from overwork. Your wife and children, too, will want to change. You must be away at least two months. When you come back, I will give you a letter to the editor of the Cosmopolitan. He will do, I may say, a good deal for me. If you can write, he will let you write. If not, he will find some other remunerative occupation for you. And, I think, you would probably like to discharge any pecuniary obligation that you may be under to Mrs. Warboys. I should, but it is impossible. There is no money. Oh, some arrangement can easily be made. Let me see. Why not borrow a hundred from me, giving me your I.O.U.? Even if it is not convenient for you to pay before my decease the sum to which you are entitled under my will... Stop, said Weeks. It doesn't take me in. You're giving me money. I take it with gratitude. You've saved my life, and you've made it possible for me to go on living. And you've done it all so kindly, treating me as an equal, and no one's been like this to me for a long time. Damn it, I can't even speak about it. He rose and turned to the window with a sob in his throat. Albert Weeks holds a sub-editorial post on the Cosmopolitan now. He has a very comfortable little flat in South Kensington. Wilmot did his best to live without self-respect. He lasted a few years wearing himself out with work. He died of something quite commonplace. But I am still remembered. I am still the standard of humor to which nothing more recent approaches. End of chapter 2 Recording by Heath Ogden